You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you need batteries for your truck, batteries for your trail cameras, TV remote controls, flashlights, you name it, Interstate Batteries has what you need. They have thousands of retail locations all over the United States. So stop in, talk to a battery specialist, or for more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Welcome to the Transition Wild Podcast, brought to you by Expedition Archery. I'm your host, Adam Parr, and you're listening to episode number 60, where we talk electric bikes on public lands with Morgan Lomely of People for Bikes. Hello and welcome to the Transition Wild Podcast, the number one source for Western big game hunting. Thanks again for tuning into the episodes for everybody who's left reviews, comments, sent me emails. I love it all, so I appreciate the comments, remarks, and positive support. It really means a lot. And if you're listening to the podcast and you really like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe, hit that subscribe button, and leave that five-star review. It definitely helps with the ratings, reviews, and, and getting the word out and helping more people. So uh, if you have a quick second or two, it would be much, much appreciated. I can't believe we're already at the end of January now, um, you know, into 2020. I'm looking at this past month and going, where did the time go? Uh, I was recently at the ATA show in Indianapolis, and, you know, the the hunting, the archery industry is is always fun. It's always good to see old faces, meet new people, and and get to talk hunting and, and just be around like-minded people for, for three days. So that was a lot of fun. I always enjoy that, and uh, some more work travel coming up. So, um, a couple more shows to get done with for the year, and and we'll we'll see after that. Hopefully, it'll slow down a bit, and I can start focusing on some shed hunting or getting out and getting ready for turkey season here in the spring. It's all going to come by so so quick. All right, so my guest today is Morgan Lomely from People for Bikes, and as many of you know, listening to the podcast, I work for Quiet Cat. We're an electrical or <laughs> electrical, we're an electric bike manufacturer based out of Colorado. And um, this episode, I really wanted to do not only for the listeners, but really for myself to 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 learn more of the policies and regulations and laws. And, um, you know, just all the current events and things going on with electric bikes on public lands, because there's a lot of gray gray areas. There's a lot of different things going on in the world of e-bikes. And as it applies to hunters and outdoorsmen, uh, fishermen, camping, 
just general recreation riding trails this this all applies to you and and i think electric just electric technology in general battery powered vehicles transportation devices all that stuff's the future it's here it's now so i wanted to do this episode just to really uh, be very informational, unbiased. Uh, this isn't a product push for <laughs> Quiet Cat. I'm not trying to sell you anything, although you can hit me up, uh, Adam at quietcat.com. If you have some questions, I'm happy to talk to you. But uh, I hope you guys enjoy this one, especially if you've, you're have you using an e-bike currently on public lands or uh, are looking at potentially using one for hunting or just general recreation, bike riding. They're really cool, a lot of fun, and, and this episode was great. Morgan's very well-spoken. She knows her stuff, and uh, I really enjoyed it. So let's give it up for Morgan Lomely. Before we begin, today's episode is brought to you by Expedition Archery manufacturer of the world's finest archery experience. Expedition bows combine aerospace level quality, innovative designs, and a fluid feel serious hunters demand. Test drive one today at your nearest archery retailer and view their full lineup at expeditionarchery.com. Why settle for status quo when opportunity and adventure awaits? Make your next hunt an expedition. All right, on the line with me now is Morgan Lomely from People for Bikes. How are you today? Great, how are you? I'm doing well, doing well. You're based out of Boulder, greater Denver area. Where, where are you located? Yep, Boulder, Colorado. Very nice. Slightly north of Denver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Boulder's a cool town. I've been there a couple times, but I haven't been in a couple years, so I'm sure it's sure it's rapidly changing along with the rest of Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, yes, it is. I've been here for about 20 years, so I've been able to witness new homes. Yeah, different kind of people coming in. It's interesting. Oh wow! Yeah, I'm sure you've you've seen it change full circle, uh, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, so where where are you originally from? Are you from? Um, oh, I don't even want to take a guess, but are you a native Colorado <laughs> or are you uh, somewhere else? I'm from California. Okay, That's got where it. I grew up. Yep. Okay, got it. What made you uh, move out to Colorado? came out to see you so went to college here and met my husband in college and we both ended up staying so that's that's how we that's how we've been here for about 20 years (laughs) well you've picked a beautiful spot I feel like I'm originally from Michigan and I feel like Colorado is kind of like the best of all worlds like you still get the four seasons um you know, you have the mountains, lots of public lands, lots of places to go and see, uh, but it's not too crazy expensive in in a lot of parts comparatively to like maybe California or other parts of the world. So I think it's it's a pretty cool dynamic here. I love it. Yeah, yeah, and I mean the one thing we're missing, I feel like, is large bodies of water, which we have <laughs> in abundance in Michigan. So that's I. We sail with our family, and I've been trying to plan a Lake Michigan sailing trip for this summer. Oh, Hopefully very it'll cool! Pan out. Yeah, well, you'll you'll have to you'll have to go. Have you ever have you ever been to Michigan? I have, and I love it up there. I used to I worked for the International Mountain Bicycling Association for a number of years, and <clears throat> I frequently had projects in and around Michigan, um, and just absolutely loved it. Okay, cool. Yeah my my parents now live in Charlevoix, Michigan, which is kind of you know, northwest corner, kind of close mm-hmm. to Traverse City, and mm-hmm. a lot of boating and yeah, sailing beautiful. going on there. Yeah. So you'll you'll have to uh, you'll have to go around that area for sure. Cool, I will. 
Well, good deal. Well, you know, the the reason I reached out to you is uh, obviously we've talked a little bit before this, but uh, I work for Quiet Cat. We're an e-bike manufacturer. We're a Colorado company. But, you know, for, for me, I, I feel like I'm decently on top of policies and laws as working in, quote unquote, the e-bike uh, industry. But still, at the same time, it's it's very it can be very confusing, a lot of gray areas and, um, you know, rapidly changing as, as probably, you know, in in a lot of aspects. So, you know, the purpose, I I really just want to dive into a bunch of stuff around public land, e-bike use and, and Mm -hmm. all of that. But tell us a little bit about the organization you work with people for bikes, what you do, um, what, what are you involved in? Sure. So People for Bikes is a nonprofit. We have about 25 employees and are based out of Boulder, Colorado, and we also have a team in Washington, D.C. And we're equal parts 501c3 nonprofit, kind of a charitable foundation, and also 501c6 um, industry association. So the reason why that's important is we're able to kind of contribute uh, millions and millions of dollars every every year to local groups to support their advocacy efforts to get better bicycling on the ground. And we're also kind of the bike industry trade association. So we represent suppliers and manufacturers and um, anyone who kind of makes and sells bikes. And the reason why people for bikes was founded actually as an organization called bikes belong about 20 years ago is because we realized that there wasn't enough of the industry voice in Washington, DC and in government kind of advocating for um, policies and laws that benefit bicyclists. And if you think about it, the everywhere people ride a bike, whether it's on public lands or on the street, is almost always managed by a local state or federal government. And then if you think about the other aspect that any, any product that's sold, any service has an interest in government. So, you know, the analogy I give is pistachio grow. The pistachio industry is similar in size to the bicycle industry, and they have an incredible lobbying presence. Um, The National Rifle Association has a lobbyist for every single one of um, our elected representatives and senators in D.C. And so it, it was time for the bike industry to have a presence in government because all of the places we like to ride bikes for transportation or recreation are managed by the government. And we know that more people will ride bikes more often, which is our mission, um, if we have better places to ride and safer places to ride, whether it's on street or on trails, whether you're doing it for fun or for transportation. So People for Bikes kind of serves the local groups in supporting a lot of their work. And then we, we lobby and we are very effective at the local, state, and federal governments in transforming policies that essentially, at the end of the day, build better places, safer places, more connected places for people to ride their bicycle. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. It makes a lot of sense, and every every group, every industry needs needs that voice. And it sounds like you guys really fit that bill. And along with that, when I got on your website, started checking out, you know, uh, your organization and your team members, it looks like you are very much involved in the side of electric bicycles. Tell us a little bit about that. What's your mm-hmm. current position, and and what do you work on? Yeah, so I've been at People for Bikes five years this month, and I got hired by our COO, Jed Dice, who um, had been in conversations with a lot of bike manufacturers who were making electric bicycles. 
and who quickly realized that the laws, this is where it gets a little wonky, the laws in all 50 <laughs> states around e-bikes are all different. Yeah. So if you think about the laws related to bicycles or cars, you know, you would go from Oregon to California to Nevada, and those the laws for cars and bikes are generally the same. The laws for e-bikes were completely different in every single state. Some um, laws defined a low-speed e-bike as a moped. In some cases, they were defined as a bike, but not, you know, class three bikes, which are slightly higher speed e-bikes. Um, and so the mission really was to develop a, a kind of model legislation. And that we're really talking about road use for e-bikes, and we can get into single track and natural surface trails um, in a bit here. But for the purpose of like traffic laws and um, vehicle codes, the laws were all over the place for e-bikes. So we wanted one consistent definition of what a low-speed e-bike was, and we wanted that defined consistently in all 50 states. And so that's what I've been working on for about five years. I've since transitioned into a role, um, our, I'm our state and local policy director. So I actually oversee all of the policies and laws that affect bicycling and bike ridership and um, bicycle manufacturing at the state and local um, levels, but um, still very much involved in the e-bike work. So what we've done over five years is we've been successful in passing laws in 23 states, which is actually kind of a, a feat and unprecedented industry effort that um, basically define e-bikes in the same way. And so we have 27 more states to go, but it gets a little bit easier with every every passing year. So in other words, the goal is for someone to be able to buy an e-bike in a store and have really clear rules around where you can ride it and really kind of um, liberal rules around where you can ride it because what we know and you hopefully agree is that e-bikes are ridden and people use them and want to use them like a traditional bicycle and they're not motorcycles. So we are defining e-bikes at low, class one, two, and three low speed e-bikes as bikes with generally the same rules and um, duties as a bicyclist. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really cool. And and like you said, there, there is a lot of gray area and I've, I've been working for quiet cat, for for five years as well and i've kind of seen it you know become more standardized people are talking about laws and and policies more often but that was the thing like early on it was like you you use you you said the analogy perfect like if you drive from one state to the other the laws are pretty much going to be the same for vehicle use on the highways you know your speed limits might Mm -hmm. change whatever but um you know, generally it's going to be consistent with e-bikes. It's like, okay, well you have state laws and then you have different lands that are managed by different departments. And then you have local, you know, city jurisdictions, urban areas, bike trails, and a lot of variety. And it's just like, wow, you can really just start spinning your head around because you really don't know (laughs) what's what and, and, and how to define certain things. So that's, that's really cool that you've been working on that. And, and you said 23 States, that's, so we're about halfway Mm -hmm. there. That's cool. (laughs) About halfway there. Yep. And we have another 15 or so we're working on this, this year. Very cool. So, um, I'm pretty, I'm originally familiar with an e-bike law that was, established i believe first in california was that kind of like the first like that 750 watt rule was that kind of one of the first e-bike laws that you know of or where did stuff start to begin so uh, california was the first state where we passed this in 2015 and it uh, does define those three classes of e-bikes as long as the maximum wattage 
is 750 watts. Yeah. Or under 750. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can you can you define class one, two, and three e-bikes just as in mm-hmm. a in very detailed, you know, something easy mm-hmm. to understand? Just run through each class for us. That'd be great. Yeah. So class one is a pedal assist e-bike. You have to pedal to engage the motor. The motor shuts off at 20 miles an hour, and the top wattage is 750 watts. And um, one quick interjection here, that 20 miles an hour, as we know, isn't an average speed. That's just the speed at which, after which you're on your own in terms of pedaling your bike under human power alone. A Class 2 e-bike is a throttle-actuated e-bike. So you have a twister on the handlebar generally, and you can throttle Uh, you can twist that to get the motor going without pedaling. So it's not a pedal assist e-bike, but the motor will shut off at 20 miles an hour, just like a class one e-bike. Same thing for maximum wattage. Um, A class three e-bike is a 28 is a pedal assist uh, e-bike, but the motor will shut off at 28 miles an hour. So in general, when we're thinking about the applications for the different bikes, class three e-bikes are very popular for commuting, transportation, you know, um, just being on the road, what we call curb to curb and the class one and two e-bikes just have different, different uses. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I get a lot of questions. Yeah. I get a lot of questions around why are we capping it at 20 miles an hour or 28 miles an hour? Well, the, that's consistent with a lot of the product that's being sold in Europe. Um, the second reason is the federal government defines what you can manufacture in, you know, in a factory and what you can sell whereas the state governments define what you can use on streets or bike paths, et cetera. So the state government, sorry, the federal government for a definition for an e-bike is um, very consistent with the classes and the top motor assisted speed under um, motor power alone is 20, 20 miles an hour. So we wanted real consistency between what you could buy in a store and what you could use on the street. So consistency between that federal definition for manufacturing and for sale, kind of your consumer product safety laws and state laws for operation. Got it. Got it. And and to go back to class three, it's 28 miles an hour um, and it's pedal assist only. So you can't have mm-hmm. uh, a throttle. And then is there any wattage restriction on that classification? They're all 750 watt max. Okay, got it. So all three classes are 750 watts, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. got it. Yep. Got it. Now, how about, um, you know, just from the standpoint of Quiet Cat, we make a 1,000-watt motor. It's it's uh, has a throttle as well, but you we could easily take that off. But since it's above 750 watts, how would that e-bike be managed on roadways, public lands, bike trails would it simply not be allowed or is it um, something where you have to get registered with the department of motor vehicles what does that look like yeah so it's no longer an electric bicycle you uh you know under not to get wonky again here but under federal law it's not an electric bicycle so it. um selling it as one is technically illegal um right it, and it's a motorized vehicle so it would be subject to whatever that state's laws are around motorized vehicles um it's probably impossible to register it i doubt that your bikes have um a vin on them so there's still this like weird legal gray area yeah um and they would be allowed you know anywhere a motorized vehicle is allowed and especially in colorado there are a lot of places where motos are allowed so 
um, whether it's allowed on in, in bike lanes, um, on bike paths is up to the city generally. But if we're just looking at Colorado, um, they, they wouldn't be allowed on separated bike infrastructure or non-motorized single track trails, things like that. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. And, you yeah. know, a lot of our customer base, we, we use it, uh, our customers use it for hunting access and, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's yeah. a, there's a good amount of people that use the thousand Watts just on private land only, like they have a ranch or, right. you know, their own hunting land. So that's kind of where we're at with those. And, and like you said, they don't have a VIN number. They're not, they're not like an ATV or a boat or a snowmobile where they, where they have that. So it is it is kind of a gray area. But at least now we have a 750-watt established, you know, ruling of these different classifications that, you know, if somebody is looking for a bike that they can ride on public lands or trails, um, you know, th- at least there's that option there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, lots of great way, lots of great places you can ride. Um, you know, a thousand watt throttle actuated bike. Um, it's just for consistency with that federal definition and state law. We just, you know, they've been capping it at seven hundred fifty watts. But obviously, lots of great, lots of great things you can do with the products you guys have. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And I was, I was reading on your site. It seems like you're a pretty avid e-biker yourself. Like you commute back and forth to work. Um, how, how long have you been riding e-bikes? Stretched out version of a bike. So I actually, um, hey, hey Morgan, about 6,000 miles. Hey Morgan, oh, yeah? r- real, real quick. Sorry. When I asked that question, it, I think it like, uh, dropped off for a second. So let me, um, let oh, me re-ask okay. that question. I can edit right. it back in. It won't even be like there was a glitch or anything. Um, one second here. Hey Morgan, and I was looking on your website, and it looked like you're a pretty avid e-biker yourself. Tell us about that. How long have you been riding an e-bike, whether it's commuting or riding trails? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I've been riding an e-bike for commuting and just getting around town for about I want to say five years, um, nah, maybe four years. So I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and when my son was almost a year old. I got a long tail e-bike. So just picture kind of a stretched out e-bike that's designed to carry kids on the back. And what happened, um, not what happened, but it's kind of changed the way that I get around town. It's more of a car replacement for us than, than a bike. We still have lots of different bikes in our garage and we mountain bike a lot, you know, do all sorts of different kinds of biking. But in terms of everyday use, um, I've put about 6,000 miles on two e-bikes that I carry my kids around on as a car replacement. So it's been a really fun journey for us. And it's also kind of opened my eyes to bicycling, not just as a recreation opportunity or a sport, but also as kind of a solution to a lot of our other um, transportation and mobility and and health problems. So yeah, I I use it almost every day and my kids love it. It's just fantastic to (laughs) raise my kids by getting around town on a bike. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I, I mean, uh, obviously again, our, our bikes at quiet cat are geared more towards hunters and outdoorsmen, but a lot of mm-hmm. our customer base, including myself, I mean, I ride it back and forth to work. I ride, you know, bike pass. I take it when I go camping. Uh, there's just a lot of cool aspects that you can really use an e-bike year round in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, that really opens people's eyes when they're considering a, a purchase and, and, you know, becoming more familiar with e-bikes for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, um, 
what are what are some of the common reasons why people may be against e-bikes? I feel like obviously it's coming around a little bit more, but I feel like there's still like there's this there's this line in the sand, especially between the mountain biker crowd and you know people that want to ride e-bikes on on similar trails. But what are maybe some of the common misconceptions or reasons why people would not want e-bikes on bike paths or trails or other public lands? Ego. Ego. Um, there, yeah. I, I mean, I've kind of heard it all. Um, it's ego and a lot of fear of the unknown and fear of things changing. And I actually really honor and accept those viewpoints into our work because it's, it's a natural kind of phase of accepting new technology and, and accepting that things are changing. You know, some of the common arguments I hear are electric mountain bike access will threaten traditional bike access or a lot of the hard fought wins that mountain bikers have, um, have accomplished. It, they'll cause significant natural resource damage, so trail erosion and soil displacement. You know, they will scare wildlife. They'll threaten the solitude of other trail users mountain bikers don't want to be passed on an uphill by a rider uh, on an e-bike. And like I said, I, I really don't spend a lot of time dismissing that because that's the way people feel and we can't change hearts and minds. What I get really jazzed about is more people using public lands and more people riding bikes and e-bikes do that. So I've, you know, in the five years that I've been working on this project, I've seen a lot of the vitriol on public forums, especially, you know, taper a little bit and people kind of becoming a little bit more neutral, but there's still people out there who argue about wheel size and, you know, disc brakes versus whatever other brakes. And so people will always be arguing my, I really try to focus on what we can do to get more people using a bike, recreating outside but also honoring that there are real concerns with especially natural resource impacts and social impacts of electric mountain bikes on single track trails. So doing what the industry can to support studies and, um, you know, just studying the human dimensions, the natural resource impacts and bringing those people to the table and understanding how we can find middle ground around those issues. So certainly not dismissing them, but spending a lot of time um, focusing on the good things about e-bikes and bringing people along. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, and and it's really cool to you know hear hear that. I mean, it gets more people out on the on the trails. Um, everyone pays, you know, so to speak, for these public lands, tax dollars wise. So why not open it up? Uh, there's yeah, the e-bikes can weigh a little bit more, but there's really not any more. There's not a significant uh, above and beyond impact of an e-bike over a normal bike as far as, you know, uh, noise or uh, tearing up the trail. Like the, the, the power is, you know, obviously e-bikes are very, they have a good amount of power, but it's not like they're in the same class of a dirt bike where you're kicking up rocks and, and stuff like that. So it's, and, and I've always thought about it from the standpoint of like, okay, well, yeah, you might pass a few people going up some some long climbs but it's not like you're gonna be as long as you're not being a total uh you know asshole so to speak (laughs) i feel like if everyone's aware of 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 certain riders and 
looking out for everybody. It's not like you can be hauling 35 miles an hour, whereas somebody might be only going eight miles an hour, 10 miles an hour on a e-bike or right. a normal bike. And you certainly can't go any faster downhill um, in a lot of aspects. So it's just, I don't know. I feel like a lot of the stuff is, like you said, ego thing and afraid of change and uh, maybe cheating in, in yeah. some ways. So um, it's just good to hear that, you know, there's, there's yeah, cheating. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> it's just kind of the normal stuff that I've heard. And, and it's, it's uh, I guess, good to hear you say the, those same things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that people are coming along slowly or just like I said, becoming neutral about it. And there's just this natural bell curve of responses to anything new that we have to work with. And the ultimate decision lies with land managers and electric mountain bikers. If they want better access can really work with land managers on it. So we try to focus our work on land manager resources and really steering people in the direction of great rides. Very cool. Very cool. And I want to, I want to talk about that stuff in a second. Um, before that, are, are you aware of any like impact studies or research studies where there's e-bikes and normal mountain bikes or pedal bikes kind of using the same trails or paths? Um, I believe I think I read one about Boulder, actually. Um, I can't remember how many years ago it was, but um, I guess are there any kind of evidence or studies that kind of show that e-bike doesn't really have a significant um, impact uh, in regards to mixed use? There are a few out there. So in 2015, the International Mountain Bicycling Association, and we, the industry helps fund this a little bit, did a study of class one electric mountain bike use versus traditional mountain bike use. And the way it was designed, it was a closed course in, outside of um, Portland, Oregon, where an, a class one electric mountain bike rider did 500 laps on a closed circuit. And they evaluated, you know, uh, where the soil was before and after and during um, the, the laps. They did the same study with a, a traditional mountain bike. And what they found was that the, the soil displacement and the potential erosion and just any kind of physical impact of the two different bikes was really quite similar. So the general conclusion was that class one electric mountain bikes have very similar trail impacts to traditional bikes. What's interesting is they did a few laps on a throttle actuated class two e-bike, and then they did one on a motorcycle. And those impacts were clearly more significant and they stopped those laps, you know, 10 or 15 laps in. So that was, that was a really relevant data point. We get a little bit of criticism or maybe a lot that it's a pretty uh, unique ecosystem that kind of loamy, moist, humid Pacific Northwest environment. And it, we would really be served well by having uh, something east of the Mississippi or in a desert climate or Southern California, for example. So trying to find places to do more social, uh, sorry, environmental impact studies. The other side of the coin, and this is really where the real um, kind of, you know, head rubbing lies is what happens to a trail from a social perspective once electric mountain bikes are on there? So will traditional mountain bike riders, hikers, dog walkers, et cetera, still want to use that trail system? And, you know, what what happens to that experience? Because a lot of recreation management is about the experience that we offer, everything from trailhead signage to trail width, con considering the carrying capacity of the trail and just the way people feel when they're outdoors on that trail. Do they feel safe? Do they feel like they have solitude? Do they feel like they're able to kind of refresh and recharge their batteries? So the city of Boulder did a little bit of that. Um, 
true to Colorado, the BLM conducted um, some uh, interviews around that on non-motorized and motorized trailheads. And gosh, Jefferson County, Colorado is probably the best example. And what they generally found was electric bike riders and traditional bike riders and other trail users are able to share the trail really well. There's always going to be some conflict or at least perceived conflict between different trail users, regardless of how you're using the trail. But in general, when you add electric bikes to the mix, coupled with good signage and good user etiquette, everything is fine. And I mean that really generally. There's always going to be an isolated incident of someone feeling like another person passed them too quickly. But I even get that when I'm riding my e-bike on our bike paths here in Boulder. You know, there's a dog walker with a really long leash and the dog's just in the middle of the trail or some, I may be, you know, zipping past someone at a couple miles an hour faster and it startled them. You know, there's always going to be this idea that we have to share the trail and that it's a public resource, but e-bikes aren't the source of any real conflict those studies find. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good to know. I mean, that's, that's that's good to hear, and uh, a lot of good examples there. And of course, as this evolves, I'm sure there will be more studies and and funding behind that to kind of kind of really dive into it. But that's that's really good to hear. That's that's really neat. Yeah, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the recent ruling of um, BLM and national parks, where I think it's Class Two e-bikes are are now legal to ride on national parks and BLM. And that was passed this past uh, September, October of 2019. I can't remember, but talk to us a little bit about that and that ruling and, and kind of what that means for, for e-bikers. Yeah. So on August 28th, the department of interior, which is a federal agency that manages a federal department that manages nine agencies, four of which really manage recreation those are Bureau of Reclamation, National Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Bureau of Land Management. And it's a lot of alphabet soup and <laughs> kind of confusing, but basically everything but the Forest Service. They came out with a secretarial order, which is just like, you know, if you think of a presidential analogy, an executive order, it was a secretarial order signed by the secretary saying, uh, we instruct all four of these agencies to go through the, po- the process to consider allowing class one, two, and or three e-bikes on non-motorized trails where bikes are allowed. So that was a landmark secretarial order. I mean, that changed everything for, for those four agencies. And each of them works on their own time frame and within their own um, kind of policies and, sorry, not policies, but um, frameworks to update their policies. And so on August 29th, the Park Service came out with a new policy saying that unless a park superintendent, which is kind of the boss of the park, determines that e-bikes shouldn't be allowed based on safety or other public considerations, um, the park will allow class one, two, and three e-bikes wherever bikes are allowed. So that was huge as well. And then those three other agencies, Fish and Wildlife, Reclamation, Bureau of Land Management, they're all going through their own updated policy process. And one more layer, is, and which is not informal, but it's not changing the law. And so one more layer is that those four agencies are going through what's called rulemaking process, which is actually changing the law around how e-bikes are defined either as motor vehicles or as bicycles in federal law. So whereas the policymaking progress, process is a little bit more informal and could lead to short-term wins for EMTB access, the rulemaking is really where law gets changed so that we have permanent changes to EMTB access. 
Got it. Got it. And and you so. said fish and wildlife and bureau reclamation. What what public lands would those be managed under? Fish and wildlife, they manage all of our nation's uh, wildlife refuges. So generally those lands are um, in like designed for preservation and conservation, but there are some shorter, especially paved bike paths there, um, some kind of soft surface, crusher fine, improved trail surfaces. There's not a ton of real mountain bike or kind of mountain bike recreation, but there's a lot of just like exploring you could do by bike through those refuges. And they're looking to allow e-bikes where bikes are allowed, whereas before e-bikes were defined as motorized vehicles and, and couldn't be allowed there. Bureau of Reclamation has a lot of land in in the West, and Bureau of Reclamation was established under a different name, but basically to manage water that's held for irrigation, that's held for drinking, um, our major Western water reservoirs. And it's actually really fun mountain biking. It's more trail biking, but a lot of kind of recreation mountain biking trails have been built around the reservoir rims. And so it's kind of up and down, it's pretty flowy and a lot of land in Utah and California and in the um, Pacific Northwest. So they're generally a public land holder um, in the West, whereas fish and wildlife is all across the U S you know, the big one here and one that you're probably the most familiar with is a Bureau of Land Management and they traditionally manage, um, lands for recreation, but also for surface and mineral mining and disperse many of the leases that are on public lands for mining. But there is incredible mountain biking on a lot of their public lands because one of their mandates is to, to manage their lands for recreation. So they're they're involved in all this too. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, you know, with that, there are, so it sounds like there are some restrictions even with this Department of Interior ruling where it says, you know, e-bikes are, are now allowed. Um, it's still kind of, you, you still have to be paying attention to your local jurisdiction. Like you said, the national parks, like basically they can still say that, no, they're not allowed because of safety reasons or whatever. And, you know, so you can't just look at it as a blanket statement. Same thing with the BLM. It, it, it sounds like that the, the local offices and land managers have to make a ruling and allow this mm-hmm. before, you know, you can just go ride your e-bike. Talk to us a little bit about that yep. and how, how it breaks down at different local levels. Yep. So it's up, I mean, in, at the BLM, the local units are called units. So um, it's up to the, what is the name? Like the field manager for each unit to engage in this process to update their policies. And what I always tell advocates who ask me how to navigate all this is they try to understand everything they have going on. They, you know, they might have overflowing toilets or illegal marijuana grows or like any kind of real policy issues in terms of wildlife management or just a lot of things that come before them every single day that they have to manage. And despite the secretarial order, it's still not a huge priority for them to update their e-bike policies and they will kind of get around to it when they get around to it. But if there's a really organized group of electric mountain bikers who would like to see better access on non-motorized trails, then they're more likely to have a mandate and they shall respond. Um, But yeah, it's all, I mean, you described it really well. It's all about what happens on the local level and the up to the field manager or to the refuge um, manager for fish and wildlife or, you know, whoever the corresponding person in charge is at reclamation or the park service 
to update their policies. And um, they do have this secretarial order that they need to implement, but government moves very slowly and they're taking their time. Yeah. 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 So just, just so I have this clear, when it comes to national parks and BLM, e-bikes are now legal until further notice until they, they say, no, they're not allowed in this area or are e-bikes not legal until they've made a ruling saying, yes, they are. Which side is it? Um, for park service units, e-bikes are generally allowed unless disallowed. Okay. Yeah, but for reclamation, Fish and Wildlife, and Bureau of Land Management, generally not allowed um, until those local policies are updated. Got it. And so is there anything on the People for Bikes website that, that shows maybe these local units where they have been allowed and passed and there has been a ruling? Or is it still kind of you have to call your local office where you intend on using the bike at and ask them directly? <laughs> So thanks for asking because this is, it's really important for me to share this information with your listeners. So we, we understand that it's super confusing and there's even been a level of confusion at the land manager level, but thinking about the rider and, you know, your audience and the information they want about where you can ride, we have put together this massive spreadsheet of everywhere you can ride. And so if you go to, um, and it's not, you know, it's not awesome yet because of what we just talked about. A lot of the local units and parks have to update their policies. But if you go to peopleforbikes.org slash ebikes and go to, there's a tab there. It's pretty clear, either rides and routes or um, federal policies. That is just a library and a treasure trove of resources to understand the policy based on each agency and you can check out our spreadsheet on um, on uh, where you can ride based on those four agencies. And we have a lot of blogs on it and really try to distill it down, knowing that people want better access, yet all these policies and rulemakings and everything I just described is so complicated, trying to distill it down for people. Got it. That makes sense. So that spreadsheet on there will kind of show which local areas, if I'm in Eagle, Colorado, I can get on there and see which office that is and whether or not they're allowed. Yep. Yep. Wow. That's really cool. And we parsed it out for the Park Service, Bureau of Land Management, and the Bureau of Reclamation. Okay. Wow. That's, that's really cool. I'll have to, I'll definitely link that on my website when we post this podcast, because I think that's important, like you said, especially for (laughs) our listeners, you know, people buying these for hunting. Um, I myself hunt on a lot of BLM land and, um, you know, so that's important for sure. So that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm on there right now. So if, if I go to, to like towards the bottom, there's like research and stats and then rides and routes and policies and laws, would I click on rides and routes? You could do that, but how about click on federal policies right now? Okay, got it. And then it just kind of on the top fold here, you can see spreadsheet of federal e-bike policies by DOI agency. Let me see, spreadsheet. Okay, yep, I see that. So click on that. Oh, wow, very cool. So, you know, you can quickly scroll down and those lines that are in green are where you can ride your e-bike, you know, like... Eisenhower National Historic Site, uh, you know, all these different places. Fish and Wildlife Service, you'll see most of those places are open to e-bikes, but Bureau of Land Management and Bureau of Reclamation are still updating their e-bike policies. 
Wow. Wow. That's really cool. I had, you know, I had no idea. Obviously I was familiar with people prefer bikes, but I didn't know this resource was there. This is, this is really huge. This is great. So thank you for putting that together. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it was a big lift for not me, but one of my <laughs> colleagues, Ashley. So yeah, amazing. Some, yeah, someone spent a lot of time on that. Yeah. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, very cool. Um, so how about us forest service, uh, Talk to us about that. Is there? Do you know of anything in the works for getting that changed or for e-bikes being allowed on uh, national forest? Is there any lobbying going on in Washington? Talk to us about that. So definitely not lobbying in Washington. Um, we've done some education over the years with the Forest Service. They, I mean, it's their job to kind of figure out what people want to use on Forest Service lands. So we've showed them e-bikes and um, invited them to some of our electric mountain bike summits, but. The Forest Service, I know, is keenly watching what's happening at the Department of Interior level in those agencies. And also, really, I feel like they have a really good understanding of kind of the desired electric mountain bike experience. But so far, they haven't announced any plans to update their national rules and regulations around EMTBs or e-bikes in general. I wouldn't be surprised if things change in the next year, but nothing great to report on that front yet. Got it. Yeah, it's kind of... It's kind of discouraging to see like, okay, well, U.S. Forest Service still classifies an e-bike in the same category as like a side-by-side or an ATV or a dirt bike mm-hmm. or, a, or a Jeep, you know, four-wheel drive vehicle. It's just kind of crazy in my mind that there's like no line in the sand or there's no distinction at this point in time. It just kind of, it's kind of weird, you know, because like, because like National Forest, um, areas there's a lot of they've shut down a lot of forest service roads like um you know for maintenance Mm -hmm. and and upkeep and and trying to cut money out of the budget a little bit um so you got all these like closed gated forest roads that aren't you know open to any motorized vehicles now and it's just like well just seems like a lot of those would be ideal for an e-bike because you know there's really not going to be any impact and um they're there they're already established so why wouldn't you allow that it just seems Mm kind of weird that they they place an e-bike in the same category as like really high powered gas powered vehicles yeah yeah and it's not and it's not really a policy that reflects modern times it's just this outdated policy and you made this point like forest service is totally strapped for cash i think 60 percent at least of their budget goes to wildfire management whereas just a few years ago is a quarter of that um and they they just don't have the resources to manage recreation the way they'd like so everyone i meet from the forest service has the best intentions it's just um i think it's a matter of resources and being really careful about what they allow and don't allow and yeah but I, you know, I'm hopeful and I've had good conversations just over the years with people who work for the Forest Service. And so no one should lose hope. It's just, just be patient. Things move so slowly. Yeah. Yeah. Understand. Have, have any, um, have any like states or federal organizations or for example, like the Department of Interior or U.S. Forest Service looked at e-bikes as a way to generate income like for example like are any is there anything being looked at as far as like maybe okay you pay 10 bucks a year to get this permit you know and that allows you to ride on these public lands is like is there any sort of discussion around that or is it still just like oh it's a normal bike and we're not gonna make e-bikes do that 
I don't think that they'll do that. I, I bet there are ideas. A lot of times the administration and kind of overhead related to even having to disperse those passes and then collect the money and then know what to do with the money is difficult. And there are really special rules in place about what you can collect and how you can use it. If you think about a lot of Forest Service um, uh, areas, they charge for firewood. And sometimes that firewood money can't even go back to the district itself, needs to go to D.C. And how that's, that's so, I feel like I'm a negative Nelly on this particular <laughs> question, but it's more like the cost of administering that program is not worth the $10 you could get from ah. maybe the 25% of people who would comply. Yeah. And a lot of times that money can't even be used for, you know, improving trails or local level decision-making. So it's, it, I mean, it's a good idea. And even in Colorado, they were kicking around an idea of a trail pass, like a $25 trail pass that Colorado parks and wildlife would administer. And that effort stalled at least this year because there were disagreements about where the money could go and how much should go to administration versus wildlife versus trail grants. So I, I always feel like I am the negative person in the room about trail passes, but I I just haven't seen it work that well in most places. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, if the money is not going back to where it was, where, where these products or the, the, the use is going on, it just like, it seems like it kind of defeats the purpose. Mm-hmm. It's like going back into the pot or to your uh, to the top level and then getting trickled down somewhere else, which is true probably with mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, like you said, with the woodcutting, you know, stuff. It's like, well, you're taking that resources from this piece of land. It should go back to that area where it was taken from to help improve it. And but, you know, it sounds like mm-hmm. it's not, you know. <laughs> Not always, yeah. And there just there's a lot of paperwork to do if you want to keep money here. And I I'm not an expert on it at all, but that's that's what I understand. So Got yeah, it. I mean, creative funding sources are great. It's just the managers have a lot to deal with already. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Now, how are e-bikes being enforced? Like, let's let's maybe talk about. BLM, because that would be a little bit more applicable to our riders as compared or to our listeners as compared to maybe commuting around Boulder. But like, um, how how are e-bikes being enforced from these different classifications on these public lands and and roadways? Like, is a police officer going to stop you? Is a forest service you know officer going to stop you? Is a BLM land manager uh going to enforce e-bikes like how does that process work or is it still kind of wild west um i don't think that there's much enforcement going on and i could be wrong i mean i'm sure you might someone might be listening right now and have received a ticket but there's not a lot of resources dedicated to enforcement and so and there's not a there e-bikes are allowed on motorized trails and wherever a motorized vehicle is allowed and so the Forest Service is, expects people to understand those rules, even though there's really no signage in most places around it. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's hard to enforce. And, you know, I know a lot of Forest Service rangers who have 250,000 acres that they're in charge of managing. And so, and, and they tell me in the same breath, like, any day I have to deal with bikes is a good day. And so if you think of the actual risks to the public and actual problems that they have to deal with, e-bikes fall really down on the list. So that's not to say that they know that they're out there, that they'd like to be enforcing it, that they maybe even want better rules that make it easier for them to enforce it. But I haven't heard of a lot of stories of them enforcing e-bike, yeah. e-bike use. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of different um, 
you know, ways around it. And I've also heard that it's really up to maybe the officer or somebody that stops you, whether or not they're going <laughs> to do anything about it or, you know, it's kind of up to their discretion Perfect. in a lot of ways. I, I don't know. That's what I've and seen. You know, they're, they're, they'll often issue warnings, which I think administratively are easier to pass out than a, a yeah. full-blown ticket. Um, yeah. I've heard some stories in Southern California around maybe Orange County parks or other kind of local or state parks in, uh, enforcing class one restrictions, but nothing, nothing I can really point to as a trend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could see it being more easily or more readily enforced and maybe higher traffic commuting areas or, um, you know, some lands that are more like bike paths and bike trails where you don't necessarily want somebody flying, you know, 28 miles an hour on a class two e-bike with a throttle, you know, that, that makes sense. But that, in a lot of ways, it just comes back to trail etiquette. Cause you could do that same, you could hit that same speed on a, on a road bike, no problem. Um, you know, right. so, yeah. but, but with that, I, I think I've been, let's see, we've been selling e-bikes for four years and I've only ever heard of two people that I've ever talked to, um, get a ticket. Uh, and I think they were more along the lines of like urban bike, bike path areas. So mm-hmm. who knows? Yep. <laughs> so, um, how, uh, let's see, how are e-bikes, let's just talk Colorado here for a second. How are e-bikes managed on, let's say state forests or state wildlife areas are, um, and maybe like talk about kind of the county and town levels. Is there a policy there? Are they kind of accepting what's currently being, you know, administered with class one and two? Um, Talk to us a little bit about that. Is there no policy? Talk to us about the state level in Colorado. Yep. I, um, Colorado state parks has 40, it manages 42 state parks and E class one and two e-bikes are allowed anywhere bikes are allowed. And they're actually probably one of the best state park that's probably one of the best state park policies around the country. And locally, you know, Jefferson County manages, if your listeners are familiar, you know, manages most of the great mountain biking trails in the Denver front range and kind of on local property. And they allow class one EMTBs anywhere bikes are allowed. So if you look at kind of Denver, Colorado, if I had to pick a state and I'm not even being biased here, probably the best state for electric mountain bikers to live in, in terms of access. And that's great. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so the um, there are mo- most other places in the Colorado, in the Denver Front Range, you can't ride electric bike on single track trails. But then once you get out into more rural areas, you can definitely ride your electric mountain bike on like the, most of the Monarch Crest Trail. And there are a lot of great places around Crest of Butte and in Southern Colorado that are open to motorized use on federal lands where you can ride. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah, that's good to know. State parks is, is open. I, I, I thought I had known that, but, um, it's good to hear some clarification on that. And then as far as like state wildlife areas, are there any restrictions there? It seems like all that stuff is all either motorized. If it's a trail, it's, it's motorized, I, I believe, but, um, are you familiar with wildlife areas at all? Um, yeah, I don't think that mountain, or, uh, electric mountain bikes are allowed on state wildlife areas. Um, Colorado State Parks has a really good handout that I'm looking up right now um, on electric mountain bike use. And I believe that state wildlife areas, you can ride your electric mountain bike 
uh, on roads and where um, where cars are allowed. Yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I and I think when a lot of people maybe who may be against e-bikes and like they're gonna just go everywhere, it's just like in a lot of ways, like you're really only gonna be riding on established either mountain bike trails or ATV trails for you to just like bushwhack across a even an open like hayfield or a a meadow or sagebrush it's just it's just not realistic you know because <laughs> it's a bumpy ride uh it, it just it doesn't it's not very conducive to just like open terrain all right i'm just going to go over here through the woods like it just it just doesn't work that way so i think i think there's some misconceptions around that too but um staying to the trail is definitely kind of the only feasible option in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Got it. Um, so that's good to know about Colorado and, and locally. And, um, do you think that there'll be some sort of at, at some point down the line, just like in your own opinion, do you think that there will be some sort of national policy that maybe, Hey, this is like class one is allowed anywhere that a normal bike is doesn't matter which state or whatever do you think there'll be some sort of national level policy or are we always going to be kind of at this localized level yep anywhere i mean the rules for riding bikes is all state and local um i I mean if we're on federal lands it's a federal thing but there's no kind of congressional legislation um yeah that's not that's not the way things work unfortunately but that'd be that'd be easy that'd be a lot easier yeah no kidding maybe maybe at some point we'll we'll be there but probably not any time within the next two to three five years but um yeah yeah it seems like you know the the work is being done organizations like people for bikes and the work that you guys are doing it just seems like it's it's really starting to standardize thing which standardize you know these laws and and um, policies. And that's what people, I think, just want. I think we want some sort of clear roadmap of like, what is allowed, what's not allowed, where where can we ride them, mm-hmm. where can we not ride them. And I think it'll only continue to get better. And, and uh, obviously, you guys have been a big part of that. So that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's been fun. And thing, I mean, things are all moving in the right direction. There's really no no big problem with the way things are moving. It's just very slow. <laughs> Yeah. People need to stick with us. Yeah. <laughs> well, very cool. Um, yeah. Before we drop off here, Morgan, where where can people go to find out more information? I know there's a lot of cool stuff on People for Bikes, and you can look up, you know, great rides and great trails to ride e-bikes. Like you can click on each state. Uh, talk to us about People for Bikes and some of the resources that are on there. Yep. So another big, so obviously peopleforbikes.org slash e-bikes is our wonderful library of e-bike resources, whether you want to ride on or off road or however you want to, um, whatever you want to wrap your head around e-bike wise. We, a big portion of our work is promoting better places to ride a bike in cities. And so that's our places for bikes program. And so if you're an advocate trying to get more bike lanes or just better bike infrastructure and connected kind of safe bike infrastructure, people for bikes has all that as well. Um, and we really try to, link bicycling with stats and provide a lot of data-driven reasons why um, there should be better places to ride bikes on and off-road. So hopefully people will go there and and sign up to get our notifications and, and be involved. 
Well, very cool. That's that all sounds great. Well, I I really appreciate you coming on, Morgan. This has cleared up a lot of stuff for me. Um, I think this will be a great resource for people using e-bikes on public lands and hunting and you know camping and just general outdoor recreation. So this is this has been really good, and and we'll have to have you back on at some point to you know maybe once things progress and we get into some different lands, we'll we'll have to have you back on for a follow up. I'd love to. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. All right, and there we go. Another episode in the books. Big thanks to Morgan for coming on the show. I really enjoyed that. I learned a lot. For myself, being in the electric bike industry and and riding on public lands myself, this really was very informational. And hopefully if, if you're considering an e-bike for hunting or outdoor recreation or are currently using one, hopefully this gave you a little bit more intel and a little bit more information on the laws and regulations and and where all of this is going. So um, again, I I really enjoyed it. Morgan's very well-spoken. And uh, if you guys have any questions at all, definitely check out peopleforbikes.org. You can hit me up at uh, my email for quietcat, adam at quietcat.com. More than happy to talk with you any questions or anything you may have. So uh, that is it. I appreciate everybody listening. I haven't yet put out the new 2020 beginner elk hunting guide for Colorado, but that should be coming out here within the next month or so. So keep your eyes peeled for that. So if you, if you haven't already go subscribe to transitionwild.com, just sign up on any one of the forums, uh, give me your name, give me your email, and I'll automatically send you the Colorado beginner elk hunting guide for free. And that's just really a a crash course on elk hunting here in Colorado from scouting to season dates to um, terrain, topography, laws, regulations, and just information around Colorado hunting. So it's, it's, it's really good. And again, if you're already subscribed, you will get the 2020 version as soon as it comes out. So make sure you do that. Big thanks to everybody listening. Big thanks to our partners, Expedition Archery, Skull Brew Coffee, and Outdoor Edge Knives. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon.